Welcome to the Ohio Baseball Weekly Show. I'm Dave Mitchell. Alongside is Blake Watson. And tonight we're going to sit back and talk about the Cleveland Indians and the Cincinnati Reds and what has happened to both teams over the past week. Blake, both teams ended up out on the West Coast this past weekend and uh, both teams had not identical records but still had troubles on the West Coast. How are you tonight? I'm good, brother. How are you? Doing pretty good. Getting ready for... Another tournament coming up this weekend, but the, let's talk about the Reds and Indians before we even attempt to get into that. The Reds went to Colorado. The Indians went to Seattle. The Indians lose two out of three. Meanwhile, the Reds went out to Colorado and split out there after a couple of the first two games, though, seemed to be a lot of trouble for the Reds out in Colorado. Yeah, it's, it's one of those things, man. That's a tough ballpark to play in, regardless of how bad the team you know, the team is. Um, you know, you, you, they're acclimated to the to the mile high. You're not, um, especially when you go in there with Luis Castillo fixing the way he's done lately and really bad. Plus, adding in the mile high stuff where the breaking ball doesn't break. There's not as much depth to the fastball or the curveball. I mean, or the changeup. It was noticeable the the lack of movement on his pitches compared to what he typically does. Um, even with the you know he struggled of late, but it, you could definitely watch in that game see that the pitches just didn't move the way they typically do. Um, you know Wade Miley coming off the off of the uh, the, the no no against the Indians struggled pretty mightily. Um, but you know you still you still split that series a ten game road trip. I think they went five and five. Um, longest road trip of the year. Uh, I'm more concerned with the team that's coming into town than the team that they just left. So the Giants, despite not being, you know, one of those teams with uh, many players, you really know who they are, you know, are superstars anymore. You know, Posey and Longoria are well past their prime at this point. Um, they're really good, man, with a couple of, a trio of uh, former Red pitchers in their in their lineup, or two of them, actually, Cueto and uh, DiClefani. Um, it's it's going to be exciting series this week, and it's one of those series where if the Reds are going to be in contention at any point, they need to at least equate themselves well with the Giants. Well, the Indians head into tonight's ball game out in LA against the Angels with a record of twenty-one and seventeen, so they're four games above the five hundred mark. Meanwhile, the Reds are in third place; they're even, Stephen, at nineteen and nineteen, but they're still only two and a half games behind the Cardinals in that tough National League Central. You know, you've got all four teams of the five teams, four of the five teams are bunched up within three games of the top spot. That Central's going to be tough all year long. Yeah, I mean, it's really similar to the way the NL Central was last year, right? Like, those teams were all pretty evenly matched. They all have their strength. They all have their weaknesses. Um, But at the end of the day, they're relatively evenly matched ball clubs. And it's going to take one of those teams getting on a hot streak. I do not think the St. Louis Cardinals are the best team in the division. Um, I don't think by any stretch of imagination, we said this going into last year too, nobody in this division is going to run away and hide. Um, I think it's going to be a team that, you know, it's going to be divisions won by a team that with 87, 88 wins, maybe, maybe get to 90. But I think they're going to beat up on each other so much all year that it's, it's going to be really tight until the bitter end. You know, what's interesting, when you look at the American League Central, Blake, 
You've got the White Sox are on top of it, which everybody expected. The Indians are in second place, two and a half games back. Not many expected them to finish second, maybe third or fourth. But then you've got the Royals who are sub-500 at 18 and 22. The Tigers are in fourth place by percentage points over the Minnesota Twins, who are really the consensus pick to win the American League Central this year, even over a more improved White Sox squad. But the Twins are 12 games under 500, 13 and 25. That's got to be the shocker of the season so far. Oh, for sure. I think, you know, going into the year, they got Barrios and they've got Kenta Maeda and they've got a good starting staff and they've been mashing for the last two or three years, especially hitting home runs. Um, you expected that team to be pretty good. And they've been pretty bad. Um, I, I don't understand, you know, what the difference is from a year ago or two years ago where they were really good both years. Um, it, it's, it's definitely a shocking development in that AL Central. And But if you're an Indians fan or a White Sox fan, it, it's a welcome um, sign because if, if they're out of it early, that's a good thing. Um, you know, you keep them, you know, seven, eight, ten, twelve games down, they stay under five hundred, then you know, you don't have to worry about them going into the final touches and you only gotta add pieces to get you better than a couple of teams, not everybody. So I, I you know, if you're not a fan of the twins, it's, it's a good thing, but if you're a fan of the twins, it's really bad. Here's a couple of numbers I want to bring up about the Indians so far this year. And it it really tells what this team's problem is. They are 3-16 and 16 this year on the season when they have scored three runs or fewer. They are 18-1 and one this year when they have scored four or more runs. Now, in every game Shane Bieber has started in his career, get this, the Indians are 38-7 and seven when they score at least four runs for Bieber. But in 28 of his 73 starts, they have not been able to score at least four runs. And since the start of 2019, Bieber's ranked 63rd out of 72 major league pitchers with at least 40 starts in run support entering his start against the Mariners on Sunday. So a lot of people want to talk about Jacob deGrom and the problems that the Mets have scoring for him. It's the same thing with Shane Bieber and the Indians. Oh, for sure. And, you know, that's a byproduct of a couple of different things, right? As the number one starter, typically every time you take the ball, you're facing the other team's number one as well. So, you know, say he's going in or playing the Mets. Well, likely he's going to be facing Jacob DeGrom. So that's, that's part of the reason that happens. The other part of the reason is they've just not invested in offensive players of late. Um the guys that they get are young. Um, they have, you know, upside. You know, we talk about the, the, the two shortstops, the center fielder they pick up from Miami. Um, you talk about different guys, and they're, they're good players. They're just not known as offensive players, right? Um, so they, they've not done a ton to invest in scoring runs, and it shows when they're facing really good starting pitching, and that's typically when Beaver's on the mound. Yeah, and here's another thing I want to bring up, and again, I'm not going to start bashing upon uh, the first baseman again and Jake Bowers, but I've brought up this guy's name several times over the last several weeks, Owen Miller, who's one of the players that the Indians got in the 
Francisco Lindor trade with the Mets. He's Cleveland's number 16 prospect. He's a 24-year-old infielder that they got from the Mets, but he's got a high upside. And right now, in 10 games in AAA Columbus, he's gone 20 for 40 with three doubles, one triple, one homer, seven RBIs, and a 1.235 OPS. And you got to wonder, with the Indians struggling with hitting the way they are, when do they plan on bringing this guy up and putting him in the lineup? It's it's something that a lot of people around Cleveland are wondering, and now I'm starting to get on the bandwagon and wonder, when are they going to bring this guy up and just send Jake Bowers a packet? There, there, we get to it again. The, the, the weekly diatribe on why Jake Bowers shouldn't be with the Indians. Love it. Um, it, it's my favorite part of the show every week. Uh, <laughs> I look forward to it every week. No, you, it's a hundred percent right, though. Like, not that you know, Jake Bowers is what Jake Bowers is at this point. But it, it, I think it's another one of those things where it's it's all about with the smaller market teams. It's all about that team control, right? When you bring him up, that clock starts running, and you know if he's going to hit at a huge level for you for five or six years, you want to start that clock is close to being super competitive as you can be and you want to have those two that are team friendly deals for as long as you can and you know that's just kind of the way it is in baseball I mean it all kind of started when you know the Cubs wouldn't bring up Bryant at the beginning of the year and they waited two weeks to bring him up just just to get an extra year of, of arbitration out of him and you know basically baseball teams were playing those games for a really long time um, and that's probably a big part of why they're doing what they're doing make sure he doesn't get that super two status and start arbitration a year early. Um, and I think they're far enough into the year now where that probably isn't as much of a concern, but you never know. Um, and they're not playing bad baseball. It's not like they're, I mean, they're not hitting, they're not the, the world beaters, but they're not playing terribly either. So I, I think of the same thing. And you see a lot of it with the Reds, with guys right now, especially with the starting rotation starting Hunter Green, unbelievable at double A. Um, Nick Lodolo has been fantastic in the minors so far this year, and people are clamoring for those guys to come up. But I, I'm a big believer in not bringing dudes up too early, but I'm also a big believer in not waiting too long to bring them up. So it's it's kind of hard to find that 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 sweet spot to bring a guy up, and and so he'll stay right. Like for a couple weeks there, we thought you know India was really struggling, and there were some people talking about oh, well, it's time to send him back down, but. You know, once you're here, you know, is is what you're going to get out of whoever you put in for Jonathan India better? I don't know. Um, is it better for him to go down and have some success? Probably. It's just a lot of gray area when it comes to calling guys up and sending guys back down. And you just don't want to bring them up before they're ready and they struggle really bad. How many great prospects have we seen come up over the years that absolutely murder it in the minor leagues? And it just doesn't translate for whatever reason. Um, and, and sometimes that can be attributed to a guy struggling out of the gate and never getting the confidence back to figure it out. Um, some guys just aren't built to deal with that, that adversity. And who knows if that's the case with, with this guy. But, you know, the, all of those things have to go into that decision-making process. What did you feel about the uh, DFAing of Sal Romano? I mean, I get it. Um I wish Sal Romano was still a part of the Reds organization in some way, shape, or form. Um, but it's it's just like everybody else. you got to be able to throw more than a fastball for a strike, man. Um, 
at times, Sal Romano was really, really good when he was getting secondary pitches over the, over the plate. Um, but when he wasn't, he's very, very hittable. And, you know, Big Sally's just, he's just not, he didn't translate well to being a reliever either. So I'm okay with it. I wish he was still part of the organization except the, the reassignment to the Triple to the camp, but just doesn't it sound like that's going to happen. You know, you, you brought up Hunter Green and what he has done at the minor league level. I mean, he hit 102 miles an hour in his first double-A win. He had 10 punch-outs in a victory over Chattanooga on Sunday. Do you think there's any chance that the Reds bring him up to work him out of the bullpen to start out? I think it depends on how close they are. Um, if, if they're If they are still competitive late in the year, I see him coming up before the September call-up timeline so that he's eligible for a postseason run. Um, whether that's come up for five days and go back down or whatever it is, I see them finding a way to bring him up at some point so if they get into the postseason, they will have that absolutely electric arm in their bullpen for, for a postseason run. Yeah, I find it fairly interesting when I'm looking at the starting pitchers for tonight's game with the Giants that Sonny Gray – does not have a win this year, just two losses, but his ERA is at 3.55. And, and and the problem with Gray has been the lack of bullpen support for him in games that he's had to leave. Oh, for sure. And the Red bullpen's been pretty good of late, actually. Um, most of the runs given up in Colorado were, were, were from the starters. Um, so the bullpen's been better for sure. Um Gray has been a, he's been a tough luck guy, kind of like Bieber early in the year. Um, he also had one or two rough outings when he first got back. His first one was okay. His second one, he got hit around a little bit. Um, and, and that's why the ERA is 3-5. I think if you take that one bad part out of it, his ERA drops down under three. And, and that's, you know, that's what you expect Sonny Gray to be at, around a three ERA. He's never been, since he's been with the Reds, he's always been more of a short, outing guy like there's, there's something with Derek Johnson and 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 uh, David Bell that they really don't like Sonny Gray seeing a lineup for the third time so if it gets to that point he's usually out of the ball game that's also hurting his ability to win games being out there later in games when you know there's less time for the bullpen to have to cover Blake uh, in, in watching the Reds over the last few weeks the thing that has bothered me the most about Eugenio Suarez's inability to get going is the fact that he just seems now to have warning track power. The game, the balls that he used to hit for home runs are now just dying on the warning track, and it's something I think that you know people are going to start noticing because if you look over the weekend, especially in Colorado. The balls that he hit just died on the warning track. There were three of them that I can recall in that four-game set. And I've seen a few of them at Great American Ballpark, too. And I think that's the thing that bothers me the most is that his power bat has just seemed to go on vacation for the last year and a half. Well, I mean, you say that, but I think he had 14 home runs last year in 60 games, and he's already got seven this year. So I agree with you to an extent. Um he seems like he's starting to swing it a little better. He had five hits in the in the three game Pittsburgh series. Um, he had a couple of hits against Colorado over the weekend. Um, he, he seems like he's back. I see him going a lot more um, 
His hands are back a little longer. He's driving the ball, hit a couple doubles into right center field. Um, so I, I think he's starting to get on track a little bit. Um, but it's it's definitely been discouraging. I mean, he's hit 153. Like that's just that's unbelievable from a guy who's playing every day. You cannot have that, especially a guy that's expected to be you one of your middle of the order run producers. Um, so the, the the Reds, regardless of what everybody else does, the Reds are not going to be a super successful team if Anthony Suarez is hitting 153 at the end of the year. That being said, I don't think he will be. I mean, I don't think he's going to be hit 290 either. But I think he's going to end up over 225, 230, and he's going to hit around 35 home runs, um, which isn't a banner year by any stretch of imagination. But I think it's okay. And with as bad as he started, if he gets to that point, I think you're going to be pretty happy with what he does the rest of the year. Well, it's funny to take a look at the team leaders on both squads and see just the difference between the two, especially in batting average. The Jesse Winker is leading the Reds in batting average with an average of 344. Jose Ramirez leads the Indians in batting average at 263. And when you, you go up and down the lineup here for the Reds, you've got Castellanos who's leading them in runs scored. He leads them in home runs. Tyler Naquin leads the team in RBIs, and he also leads the team in stolen bases. So really you've got three guys that are dominating the Reds. For the Indians, you've got one guy that's dominating things, and that's Jose Ramirez. Batting average 263, not the greatest in the world, doesn't compare to what Winker's doing. Runs 26, okay, Castellanos has got 29. Home runs, Castellanos has got 10, Ramirez has got 11. When you go to the RBIs, Reyes is leading the team with 25, and Rosario's leading the team with five stolen bases, that's Eddie. But Eddie Rosario, Blake, the free agent signee that the Indians got and they took him from Minnesota has really been a player that has disappointed probably a lot of people in Cleveland because his batting average is just 206 on the year. He's played in almost every game. He's hit just three homers, but he does have 21 RBIs, which is third on the team, but a 206, boy, I, I, you know, that, that's the problem with this team. When you look up and down, there is nobody on this team that is hitting anywhere near, and I mean anywhere near, 300. As we've already told you, the guy hitting the best for the Indians is Ramirez, Jose, at 263. But there's nobody that's even had a minimum amount of bats, Blake, that is hitting above 263 for this Indians team. It It's disappointing and you know, that's why a lot of people felt like they might go out and get Albert Pujols. I wasn't one of them. But if there's a bat that comes available in between now and the trade deadline, the Indians got to look at just about any alternative, don't they? I would say yes. I mean, I think for sure they have to be looking to upgrade offensively. Um, I don't know where that comes. I don't know what position it is. The big thing is, and this goes back to what we were talking about, you know, the last year and a half. It all comes down to what the Indians see themselves as as they get closer to the trade deadline. Do they see themselves as legitimate contenders with a very legit pitching staff and a really good bullpen? Um, or do they see themselves as not being good enough to compete for, for winning a world championship? 
So they got it's all about having a direction, right? They don't have one. They haven't had one. If they had one, they probably would have moved Lindor earlier and got a better package. Although they got a pretty good package from the Mets. Um, they probably would move on, you know, from other guys. It's, they gotta figure out who they are before the trade deadline. The, the, the biggest problem for the Indians and the Reds, I think they're both gonna hover around that 500 mark and be in no man's land at the trade deadline. And not, they're gonna have to figure it out. And do you stay with what you have and hope somebody gets hot? Do you make a move? Because I, I don't see, you know, for the Indians, you can look all over the diamond and see positional, positionally, they can upgrade. They get, you go out and get, you know, let's just say uh, names right now. Just say they could get Nick Senzel to play center field. Well, that's an upgrade. Offensively, that's an upgrade, right? Like yep. you could get, um, I don't know, somebody to so show for a Whit Merrifield, the second baseman for Kansas City out there. If you can get him to play second base right now, move Cesar Hernandez to a corner outfield spot, you're a better baseball team, right? Like, there are tons of positions where they can go out and get players that are better than they currently have without probably giving up a ton. So my thought process if I'm the Indians is to try to get better players, not go out and try to get the the top flight, you know, if George Springer's available or somebody like that. Like, don't try to do something like that. Do do it with good baseball players that happen to hit a little better than what you are, and hopefully it's guys that you have more than one year of control of. That's really what I would be trying to do if I was the Indians. And then flip side, if I'm the Reds on that, I, I don't see where they go out and get a player that's dramatically better than what they have position-wise. Like, could, shortstop's really the only one. Like, if they can get a legitimate shortstop at the trade deadline, you do it and you do it and run away. You can go get a, a D.D. Gregorius type or a, I don't know, a, I don't even know who else would be an option at shortstop. But Trevor Story is the perfect option. If the Reds can make a move for Trevor Story, you do that, you give up almost anything you need to get him outside of Hunter Green and Nick Lodolo. Um, and, and you keep it moving and you go try to win a world championship. Um, but I just, I think if the Reds are going to get better, it's going to be from getting an arm. I don't think it's going to be a position player. Yeah, I know, and Trevor Story is one of those guys that has really been rumored to be wanting to get out of uh, Colorado. So, I mean, when you look at that. Oh, yeah, when they, once they moved Arenado, it was basically a done deal, and it's just a matter of when for Trevor Story. It's not if, it's when. Here's the problem with him, though, Blake. His salary is $17.5 million a year. If you're the Reds, do you bring in somebody that has a salary that high? If it's a shortstop, it's a middle of the order bat. Absolutely. I mean, I think they were prepared to give, you know, DD Gregorius or those somebody around that level, fourteen to fifteen million dollars a year. And Trevor Story's a better baseball player than those guys. So I think if you can make it work, you do. Especially as you know, we we get further away from the COVID stuff, and they're headed to full capacity on the on June second. Then you know, I think the writing's on the wall to where. If they're competitive, people are going to be beating down the door to get into that ballpark. Um, so, yeah, I think if you can, if you can stomach it, yes, I absolutely do it. Here's here's a comparison I want to make outside of baseball to what is going on right now with Francisco Lindor. 
Francisco Lindor is now the starting shortstop with the Mets, as everybody knows that. But he's only hit three home runs on the year. He's only got 23 hits on the season. His batting average is 190. He's got eight RBIs, two stolen bases. His on-base percentage is just barely above 300. His slugging percentage is only 281. Blake, this guy has been a total disappointment for the New York Mets after signing the contract that he did subsequent to the trade from the Cleveland Indians. And the, the comparison I want to make is not that Cleveland is the mecca of a place to live. But when you're in Cleveland, and you know this as well as I do, Blake, when you're, when you're in Cleveland, there is a media sense around the teams and that city that you're one of them. They're not going to go out and try to destroy you as a player, as a person. You're there. You're happy. Everything is going according to kill, going to Kilter. But when you leave Cleveland and go someplace, especially a city like New York, where the media is out to get you rather than out to help you, it's a totally different story. And I use Kyrie Irving as an example. Uh, LeBron James is a different story, but Kyrie Irving felt that he could do better outside of Cleveland by moving himself and, and trying to push a trade not only to the Boston Celtics. Well, keep in mind, the Boston Celtics are one of the premier teams in the NBA, and they expect excellence on every single night. He couldn't deliver that. Now he's moved into the New Jersey Nets. And as you recall, yesterday, Kyrie Irving came out and said there are more important things than basketball, like what's going on in the Middle East right now. NBA fans in the USA don't want to hear that out of Kyrie Irving. The Brooklyn Net fans don't want to hear that out of Kyrie Irving, especially on the eve of going into the playoffs when the Nets are one of the teams that have an opportunity to win the NBA championship. Lindor right now, I think, is being sucked into that situation where he went to the Mets and now he is being constantly criticized where with the Indians, if he had the same stats with the Indians as he does with the Mets, they would be saying, what can we do to help you? What can we do to get you going? In New York, they're saying, what the hell did we go trade for this guy for? 100%. And I, there, there's a perfect example of a guy in baseball who did the same thing. It's, I mean, from when he was in Oakland, Sonny Gray was unbelievable. He goes to New York and he's terrible. Yeah. He leaves New York and he's really good again. Um, it's, it's just, that New York mentality isn't for everybody. Not everybody is Derek Jeter. Not everybody's Broadway Joe. Like, it's just, it, it, it's a tough place to play. Um, and it's really a tough place to struggle. Um, if, if you're going well, they love you. If you're going bad, they crush you. And, and it's, it, I, yeah, I, I'm, I said when they signed that deal, it, I wouldn't have given them that deal. I, it, you know, Lindor's been a very, very, very good baseball player for, a long time, but at some, you know, he hasn't been that same player the last couple of years. Um, he was great three years ago. He was good two years ago. He struggled a little bit last year, which everybody did, right? Like everybody had down offensive numbers last year. I just would have made him prove it a little bit, man, and took my chances. That's part of why I probably wouldn't have given up as much to get him now. 
I, I don't know, man. It, it's tough. It's a really difficult situation. He's in because um, now he's locked in. He's a Met for the next 10 years. It's not going to change. The Met can't get out of the contract. He plays the way that he's playing. He's not going to uh, – they're not going to be able to move his contract, similar to the situation the Reds are in with Votto, right? You can't move that number. Nobody's going to take that contract for a guy that's hitting 180. Um it's just not a great situation. That's why some of these baseball mega deals, man, are, are mind-boggling to me. Because you're, you know, just look at what's happened with Albert Pujols. Maybe the best right-handed hitter I've ever seen, and he got cut at the end of his contract. Like, that's crazy to think about. Think about the guy that signed that deal with the Angels and the fact that now he just got cut. What the heck are we doing giving these guys 10, 12, 13-year deals and, and when they're already 27, 28, 29 years old, it's just, it's, it's crazy. Or, you know, you're paying for what the guy was when he was 28, when he's 38. It just doesn't work, man. It, it, I, I hate those mega deals and I hate the, you know, when the Reds did the one with Votto, I loved it. And I'm like, oh, Joey's going to be great. Now it's like, yeah, but couldn't we get way more out of that money right now? It's a tough thing to think about. You you go back to the to the fifties and sixties, Blake, and and I know you can't go back that far, but I can go back to the sixties and and I remember these players. They were on one year contracts, and basically everything was incentive based. And what I mean by incentive based was you had to have a good year to go into management in the off season and say I deserve X amount of money. I mean Pete Rose becoming the first hundred thousand dollar singles hitter was unheard of at that time. Now I'm not saying we got to go back to that, but what I'm saying is you got to take this and have a happy medium between these two because you can't continually give 10 to 12 million dollar contracts to these guys because in essence Blake, you and I both know if you go into a position and you become content at it and because you know there's nothing that they can do with you. You're going to be there for the next 10 or 12 years. You become even subconsciously content, and your game isn't as good as when you're driven to perform. And I think that's the problem with Lindor right now. He knows he's got the money in the bank. He knows it will probably come back. But right now, he doesn't have that internal flame to really push himself to become what he was two years ago. Yeah, I think you're, you're, you, you hit the nail on the head. Some guys have that inner motivation. Some do. Most do not. Um, most of those dudes are playing because they're setting themselves up for generational wealth, right? Yep. Like that's what they're setting themselves up for, setting their families up for. And they're out there looking for the biggest payday, not the perfect situation for themselves. Um, and you know, that's not... You know, you, you go back, I go back to basketball when everybody was crushing Kevin Durant for going to Golden State. And I'm sitting there thinking like, you know, we can't have it both ways, right? We always complain about the player that's out there just chasing checks instead of guys that want to win or guys that want to put themselves in the best position. I see it every year with kids that are going to college, man. It's, you know, oh, I'm only hunting for a D1 scholarship. Well, you know, maybe D1's not where you should be. Maybe it's not the best fit for you. Maybe the place that's going to give you a D1 scholarship 
isn't the best fit for you academically or athletically. Absolutely. So you, you're making a decision based on the financials instead of based on what is the best situation for you. And, and that's, you know, that's kind of what we're in now with baseball. You look at, you know, and I think he's thriving on it, but Trevor Bauer going for just the most money he could get. And that's, that, that to me, I mean, he put himself in a great situation too, but it, it's it's just the way it goes in, in sports nowadays. Everybody's chasing money, and if they don't, if they chase rings, we crush them for chasing things. If they chase money, we crush them for chasing money. Those dudes can't win, and we just continue to complain about what they do. It just, no matter what, it's not a good situation for anybody. Mike Trout is a guy that I agreed giving the money to because he was just the type of guy that I felt was not going to rest on his laurels. Tom Brady's another guy that I would have given the money to because you know that guy isn't going to rest on his laurels. Two other NBA players that I want to bring up that have proven that they don't do it. Michael Jordan was one and LeBron James was the other. Give what you may about those two players, whether you like them, hate them, love them, whatever. Those are two guys that, Blake, they got the money, they've had the money, they know what the money is, but they know where the money came from, and they constantly were looking to improve themselves in every facet of every phase of their game. Yeah, I mean, I agree with you there. I could nitpick about LeBron, but I'm not going to. You know, I'm not a LeBron fan. Um, he, uh, you know, the difference between him and Jordan is I think Jordan really knew where the money came from, and the money comes from the people in the stands. And Jordan put it on the line to deliver for those guys every single night, 82 games a year. And LeBron doesn't care about the average fan. That's my biggest issue. Um, you know, he doesn't care about going to Memphis and a guy that's taking his kid to see the, you know, the Cavs or the Lakers now. And it's the only time in this kid's life he's ever going to get to see him and he's going to sit out because he needs a rest day. That's the, that's something that, you know, the generation that I come from and obviously you, that wouldn't have happened, right? right? The best players played every single night unless they were actually hurt. That's one of my big beefs with LeBron. Is he's kind of one of the guys that started this load management stuff. Um, and, you know, when he's hurt, he's hurt. It is what it is. But, yeah, I agree with you completely. I, I, I think, you know, you look at the, the Bradys of the world, that guy is motivated by one thing and one thing only, and that's winning Super Bowls. He doesn't care. He would play football tomorrow for $12 if he got a chance to win a Super Bowl. He doesn't care. Now, that comes with being super-duper rich, and you don't need to worry about money. Um, and some of these younger guys obviously do. Uh, but, yeah, no, I, I agree with you completely. It's, it's a different mentality, and some some guys have it and some guys don't. Blake, did you see the collision between Yonder Alonso and Jose Abreu over the weekend? I did not. They were going for a foul ball in Kansas City. And that, uh, Brian Dozier had, or excuse me, Hunter Dozier had hit. And it was a pop foul on, in between home and first base. And Dozier ran right into Abreu. Abreu never, they never saw each other. And Dozier was running towards first base. Abreu was coming in to, to catch the foul ball. And they collided and they were both on the ground. For about five minutes, Abreu, both, both players had to leave the ballgame. It was a Friday night. Um, unbelievable collision. But there was nothing that anybody could do about it. Alonzo ended up catching the ball. 
and Dozier was out. But there was nothing anybody could do, but it's just one of the most violent collisions that I've seen on the baseball field in a long, long time. You see that out of outfielders, but you never see it on the infield. This one was just between the runner and the, the first baseman. That's terrible. Um, and, and you see it at first quite a bit. That's the place you do see it. Um, but man, it's, I, I actually just brought it up and watched it. That's, that's nasty. And you, you feel for those guys and they're obviously going to miss some time. Um, well, Abreu came back the very next day on Saturday, got the game winning hit, and then he scored the game winning run yesterday. <laughs> Holy hell, I can't believe he played a day later. I know. Um, it was, it was, in today's he, concussion era, you thought he'd be out for years. Well, and they had um, to, if you watch it even further, they literally had to help him off the field. They had to carry him off the field, not on a stretcher, but just his arms around a couple other teammates. Um, Dozier got up and walked off under his own power, but it was, it was a violent collision. I mean, if you get a chance, go onto YouTube or whatever and, and try to find it because it was it was really something else. You think Sonny Gray gets his first win tonight? I don't know, man. Kevin Gosman has been really, really good for the Giants. Uh, I think it's a lineup that that Gray can absolutely master tonight. I think he can do what he needs to do to get his win. I just don't know if they're going to be able to score against Kevin Gosman. Yeah. Well, the Indians are going to be in California or Los Angeles. Which I guess is part of California, but they don't call them that anymore. And Sam Hentges is going to be on the, the mound for them. I like this kid, Blake. He's a left-hander. He's a guy that the Indians have needed a left-handed pitcher over the last three years. They haven't had one, believe it or not. And I think this kid has really got an opportunity to be an outstanding pitcher for the Indians. And then he's going to go up against Sandoval with the Angels. Did you see that Oto had to take a couple of days off because the Angels have been working him so hard in the outfield at DH and pitcher, he was totally exhausted. That doesn't surprise me. Trying to be a two-way guy at the major league level has got to be unbelievably difficult. Trying to get all of your off, like your between starts work in as a pitcher, the running, the bullpen sessions, the things like that, that as a starter starting pitcher you have to get in that that's a full-time gig in and of itself and he's trying to do that in the morning and then play that night whether that's as a designated hitter or an outfielder um he's a special special cat but at some point it's going to catch up to them and they're gonna they're gonna wear him out i think um it's tough to say which way you know it'd almost be better for everybody if at some point he became a one-way guy but which way did he go? Because he's a dynamic player on both ends. Um, I, I don't know. Maybe it's a spot where they got to start minimizing what they do with him. Maybe it's, you know, the four days between starts, he plays two of them instead of four, um, or the three days between starts, however their their rotation is set up. Um, it, it's crazy to think about trying to do all of the things he does on a daily basis and continuing to be a productive major league hitter and starting pitcher. Um, you know, I think if it were me, I'd probably start pushing him at some point more towards the position guy. I just think he can have more of an impact there every single day. Yeah. Um, and maybe he becomes a position guy that's a bullpen arm instead of a, instead of a, uh, instead of a starting pitcher. I don't know, man. It's tough. 
And that would be a real interesting matchup problem because you could stick the kid in the outfield, bring him in to pitch to one batter, stick him back in the outfield, flip-flop with another reliever. I mean, you, you the opposing managers, and don't don't leave, don't think Joe Madden hasn't thought about that. He's one of the most out-of-the-box thinking managers in baseball. But, uh, Blake, well, I want to tell you. He's probably better fit to be a National League player because of that. Um because he can do so many, I mean, obviously you want him to designate it, it, but on the day that he's the starting pitcher, he is, you know, a middle of the order bat. You don't lose it when you, when he leaves the game. Um, I, I think, you know, if he was a National League player, especially with the way he got it, like the way David Bell's been moving people around, he could do all kinds of stuff for you. Well, around the state of Ohio, the Ohio, High school baseball tournament and softball tournaments are getting underway, but uh, I've kind of left the the best for last, Blake. The the pictures that you had this weekend for the Mount St. Joseph Lions softball team uh, winning the Heartland Conference Championship, just some outstanding pictures and outstanding work by those girls to win the Heartland Conference, and now they move into the NCAA Regionals. It, it, it definitely was fun going down into Lexington and broadcasting those games. And uh, this is just one of those teams, one of those special, special teams that there are no egos on it. Everybody works together to do one thing, and that's win. Without a doubt. I don't think anybody on that roster cares about anything other than winning the game. Um, they, they are, like you said, a very special group. Um, and athletically, they're special. But as kids, they're special. Sarah Miller is one of the best human beings I've ever met in my entire life. They've got future nurses. They've got future lawyers. They've got future teachers. They've got the kids that are going to be educating this, the next generation of young women in America on that team. And every one of them is, is built to succeed in life after softball at the Division Three level. Um, winning at Transy was a blast. Covering that is fun. I appreciate the kind words about the photos and the coverage we put out. Um, but those girls, man, they make it easy, right? Like those women yeah. make it easy. It's not hard to cover a team like that. It, it's, it's fun. I mean, we, I made the joke to somebody today. I took 740 pictures during that one game. While I was taking 740 pictures, I was also live tweeting the game, um, writing a story that we put out right after the game, making graphics during the game doing video of the final out. It was a lot of fun. It's a lot of work, but it was a lot of fun. Yeah, and, and the whole weekend was fun. They just went there. They dominated that tournament. They beat the number one seed in Transy twice in order to win it, and it was an outstanding effort by them, and now they go on Thursday, 10 a.m. to play DePaul, a team they've already beaten, Blake. They've already beaten DePaul. Yeah, and that's the the NCAA selection committee did not do DePaul any favors. Um, I was talking to a few of my buddies in the, in the profession, and they were in the sports information profession. They were talking about you know, there's always that whether it's a World Cup or you know an NCAA regional for basketball or whatever. There's always that group of death or the bracket of death or whatever it is, where you look down and it's like holy crap, the 12 seed could win this bracket. Well, that 16 bracket, all 16 could win it. Yeah. Um, DePaul is obviously the favorite. They're the number two team in the country. They've only got two losses on the year. One of them two are Mount St. Joseph Lions, like you said. Um, would have probably been two should that second game not have been uh, lightning out and they didn't have lights. But 
we're headed to Milliken University, Decatur, Illinois. Um, I think the team will probably leave tomorrow, practice on that field on Wednesday. Um, I think first game is tentatively scheduled at this point for 10 a.m. against DePaul on Thursday. Uh, and yeah, man, we'll just continue to, continue to ride that team. And, you know, Sarah Miller pitched a fantastic game when we went to Paul that, to DePaul. They haven't really seen Cam McCool for a full game. So we've, we've got a little bit of a benefit there. Their stud starter didn't pitch the first game against us, which we won. She was on the mound in the second game, which we were leading about halfway through when it was called. Um, she's really, really, really good. Um, when DePaul played Transylvania earlier this year, they swept them in a doubleheader. She threw all 14 innings. Um, and she's good, man. But I don't think there's a team in that 16 regional we can't beat. Um, and it's going to be fun to watch. It's going to be fun. That's definitely the truth. So, well, anyway, back to the Reds and Indians. The Reds are on the road in San Francisco. To, or I should say they're – are they home or on the road tonight? I forget. Home. They're home. Okay, yeah, they're playing the Giants. That game will be around 6, 7 o'clock. I haven't looked at my calendar as of yet. The Indians are on the road, though. They're playing in L.A. to take on the Angels, and that's going to be late night. I know that, 1030. I, I may not be able to watch that whole thing, but I'll try. Anyway, that's going to do it till next week, Blake. It's going to be a busy week again, but we'll we'll talk to you again next Monday. All right, Dave. Thank you. Thank you for all you do for us at the Mount. Well, thank you, Blake. It was, it was fun doing it, but we'll talk again next Monday night about the Cincinnati Reds and the Cleveland Indians. For Blake Watson, I'm Dave Mitchell. Until next Monday night at 7. Have a good week, everybody.